The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Thanks for being with us today. Um, I'm your host, Kelly McMillan. We'll be here for about the next hour talking about uh, a number of things related to firearms, uh, the firearms industry, and uh, shooting and the shooting sports in general. I'm uh, here with my co-host today, Zev Nadler. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, and we're really excited about our first guest. Um, kind of unique. Um, I doubt you'll find anybody that that does what he does and especially to the extent that he does it i just happened to have uh one of my registered badass friends come by today and i mentioned who was going to be on the show and um he said oh is he out of tucson i said yeah he said oh green something i said yeah that's him he said oh he's the real deal <laughs> so so i'm going to tell you right up up front that uh Freddie Osuno is is really the real deal. His company is uh, um, very well uh, accepted in the elite community for not only uh, the work that he does, but because of who he is. And uh, I would like to uh, introduce Freddie Osuna. Welcome, Freddie. Hey, Kelly. Zev, uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's an honor. I've been a fan of uh, O'Kelly for a long time, and I'm glad to be here and share uh, share our uh, our message. Well, good. Well, let's get this out of the way right off the bat. Your website is greensidetraining.com. Uh, they can find out uh, who you are, what you do, and everything. It's basically a, an overview of, of what you have to offer. Uh, I want all of our listeners to know that we encourage you uh, to check it out. Um, most of you are listening to this show on the internet, so you're right there at your computer. So go ahead and uh, switch over there and and see what GreensideTraining.com is all about. Uh, let's start with you a little bit, Freddie. Give us some uh, background, a little history on you, uh, where you come from, how you got into what you're doing, and and uh, we'll start with that. Yeah, Kelly, thanks. Uh, well. Uh- my background's kind of, uh, I guess, uh, I guess I was born for what I do now. I, uh, I was, uh, at a young age, I was a ward of the, uh, Foscoyaki Indian tribe. I grew up in the foster care system. Um, uh, it was kind of like sink or swim, you know, uh, bigger kid wants to take your toy, he's going to take your toy, you know, things like that, uh. And uh, so it was kind of like awareness was a very important aspect of growing up. It was survival. It was, 
you know, it was, uh, I guess, social status and, and all that. And uh, growing, in, growing up in the Bodios of Tucson was the same way. Uh, you know, awareness is pretty important. And uh, so at a young age, exploring the desert, the Sonoran Desert outside of Tucson, was uh, my release. It was, uh, I was afforded to be uh, put in the home of a World War II veteran and his wife, uh, Carmen Payne. And, uh, you know, they let us explore the desert and, and, uh, that's where tracking really took off for me. You know, reading trails of quail and small game, peyote, javelina, and, um, you know, we, we spent years, me and my brother, uh, during the summertime and during the school year, you know, teaching ourselves about that stuff. At an earlier age, probably early, early 80s, um, I spent time with my grandmother, who was a Pascoyaki Indian, at the uh, New Pasqua on the uh, southwest side of Tucson. And uh, she, she taught me small lessons, um, you know, about what it was to be Yaki. And, you know, I kind of grasped onto that uh, Native American culture. And as I got older, um, you know, I found myself stuck in the city and always yearned to get back to the desert. And, you know, I got in trouble for it at young, you know, young teenage ages and, and so on. So I ended up going to Marine Corps. Um, some of the things I did, because I had a really cool uh, foster care agency, they sent us to survival school and, you know, summer camps and things like that. So it was really, it was really cool that we had an agency that was uh, a proponent for foster yaki Native children. And some of the work I do now help is uh, towards, you know, the foster care, you know, mentorship and leadership for young uh, Native American youth that are in the foster care program. So fast forward. Well, Freddie, uh, uh, um, yeah. I just want to thank you first for your service. I really uh, appreciate that you were willing to uh, put yourself out there for us uh, to keep us safe. I also want to uh, thank you for your service to your community because we, we firmly believe here in, in our company that not only do we serve the entire country and the world, but you know, we live in, in this community, so it's important for us to give back to this community. And I really appreciate somebody who does that uh, in the way that you do. Hey, Cal, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, as a, uh, you know, sheepdog returning from the Marine Corps, that's our place. You know, we, we, we uh, kind of belong doing that. It's our responsibility to give back to the community. You know, we serve our country. And then we individually come back to our communities when we get out of the military, and we should really uh, take that as a responsibility, you know. To, uh, hey, Freddie, this is Zev, yeah. and uh, you're going with how your, your foster childhood as well as some of the camps that you went to really prepared you for the Marine Corps. You know, you got in, you, you went to infantry school, and, and then uh, what were your MOSs when you, were, when you finally got out? You had been a tracker. I know there are a few of those. And what else did you do while you were there? Well, yeah, there there are no MOS for tracking uh, the U.S. military. The closest thing is uh, is uh, as far as a task would be your uh, U.S. Army Special Forces. They have tasks specifically for combat tracking, which they've maintained since uh, before even Vietnam. But uh, the Marine Corps doesn't recognize an MOS for tracking. So to back up, uh, I joined the Marine Corps. O three eleven, I made it. So uh, 
you know, 0311 infantrymen. I served, what was funny is I served as a presidential security guard to start off. So I was Yankee White. And uh, they call it the Yankee White program. So a lot of, uh, you know, basically security stuff for, you know, White House communications, uh, presidential security, uh, Annapolis, Maryland, that's their task. Uh, moving on from there, finally, that drove me crazy because there was a lot of uh, college pony shows, dog and pony show stuff. Um, I joined the uh, infantry, and that's where I belong, you know, an infantry man. That was, that was my bread and butter. And I was good at it. So uh, I was a first time six Marines on an deployment there to uh, South Pacific Asia. Uh, after that, PCS after four years to the uh, the uh, first time first time fourth Marines, first Marine Division, and uh, was a squad leader two thousand four or five OF two. I fought in the Battle of Anajaf, um, and uh, if you know anything about and that job, it was uh, some of the heaviest urban fighting since uh, Hawaii City, along with uh, Fallujah. And uh, we saw a lot of action there. You know, I got to learn what it means, um, you know, what it means to be violent men and to, to really value life. Uh, I guess that's probably the most important lessons you can learn in combat. I came back from the point in 2005. And I wanted to be in a position as a Marine where I kind of had a li- little bit more control of my own destiny. And uh, luckily I was selected to, uh, for uh, the Marine Corps Scout Sniper platoon from the first time Fourth Marines. I uh, did year-long workup, graduated sniper school in uh, uh, 4 tac 5 class, and uh, basically still belong to what I consider greatest community in the world, the Marine Corps Scout Sniper community. And uh, so after that, I, I was a big advocate for field skills and bushcraft, 2005 to 2008. And I really tried to help with getting every Marine Sniper trained in digital tracking and awareness skills. And I was pretty successful. I was able to teach for a lot of the platoons in the, in the division. So that's kind of my... Uh, you know, lasting legacy for the Marine Corps, I guess. And uh, so I was, I got out, I got out of the Marines in 2008, and I was immediately hired by the Army as a combat tracking instructor. And that's where my tracking story really begins. Well, you know, I I really feel a connection with almost all Marines out there, uh, and I, and I'd have to say all Marines simply because of the work that we've done with the Marine Corps. Um, over the years with the M40A1 program, but rarely do I ever really get to connect with a, a scout sniper. There's just not that many of you out there um, that who actually, you know, carried a, a rifle that that had one of the, our McMillan stocks on it, and and that that bond seems like it's you know like kind of like we're brothers. So I, I appreciate right. the fact that you had that experience and and you shared that with me because that's. You know, that's really important to me. Uh, I myself uh, never served in the military, but I take a great deal of pride of um, supplying not only the Marine Corps, but almost all the special forces uh, in in every branch of the service with uh, some of the very finest uh, equipment that we can possibly produce for them to, you know, help keep them safe and, and make them better warriors. So uh, I, I, I feel like that's my contribution. 
It is, Kelly. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a huge contribution, and, and I tell you, your rifle stocks are a... You know, every Marine sniper wants, will have an M4DA1 stock um, you know, before they go on the other side of the grass one day. <laughs> so it's a coveted item. So. Boy, I'll tell you what, I was just um, happened to be talking with a guy who has a project that uh, he picked up some Mark 13 stocks from the Navy after they switched over to uh, chassis stocks, and uh, he's having me sign some certificates for him to, to validate their authenticity. And, um, you know, anything related to the Marines, the M40 program, uh, the Navy Special Forces guys, those things are really high demand. We we happened to get some of the stocks back a few years back, but we traded for them and and we put them out there at a reasonable price just for the, so that you know some of you guys could have access to somewhere you couldn't have uh, otherwise. Uh, unfortunately, we found people you know buying them and then reselling them on eBay for a thousand bucks, and I think we were getting a, a little over two hundred dollars for them, just enough to make it uh, worth our while, and then. Uh, you know, to see people uh, taking advantage of the situation to make a, a buck just kind of frosted me about that. But it just goes to show you and and how high a demand anything that the the warriors are using these days. It seems like that's what people want. So it's it's been good for our business, right? Especially in the uh, you know the military sniping specifically. It seems like the uh, the you know, we're able to put things through, like a stock, for instance, through uh, conditions that you just can't simulate in the sporting world. And, you know, they look at Hathcock in Vietnam and what he was able to, just the small things he was able to discover in a very short period of time in the jungle. Um, so it's, it's a pretty cool thing to be a part of that and that, a part of that lineage as a Marine sniper. So I'm trying, what I'm trying to do now is kind of you know, everything I do is attributed to my brotherhood. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've made a little, I've cut myself a little niche in, in this industry, the training industry, with teaching visual tracking and awareness. Um, and it really is attributed to all that time spent in the dirt with a drag bag hooked to my belt loop. And, you know, uh, it's a pretty cool uh, thing to be recognized for. Well, I want to jump back to something that you had said a little bit earlier, and then we can get on to your modern day tracking. You said that uh, you and, and your brother would uh, track these animals, anything from quail to javelina, and, um, and learn about them. Was that just for the fun of doing it? It was. It was. You know, I think some kids, and, and things have changed, you know, over the last 20, 30, 50 years, um, the way kids explore the woods has changed immensely. You know, 80% of population is condensed in an urban jungle. Um, so as children, you know, just having an appreciation for that critter, you know, and wondering where he goes at night and how can I figure that out? You know, that, that natural curiosity it has to be fed. You know, if there's nobody to feed it, if there's no books put in front of those kids when they're younger, if there's no, you know, proper venue for them to explore, then they lose it, you know. And uh, and having an appreciation for wildlife 
as a young age, at a young age, it expands for the rest of your life. You know, if you can't appreciate the young, the, the little critters or the big critters even or the flora and fauna in your environment, man, you, you really lose appreciation for human life as, as a whole. Um, and I've seen it over and over, you know. I have a story that, that goes along the same lines. Uh, we moved here in 1968. My father was in the Air Force, so we traveled all around. I tell people that I'm a native that wasn't born here. Um, he was born and raised here, but uh, moved here just before my freshman year in high school, and I think it was probably you know sometime during that my freshman year, we were out wandering around the desert with a friend of ours who had had grown up here, my brother and I and, and Nick, and all of a sudden we, we flushed a... Uh, uh, three um, quail, a big one and a couple of little ones. And Nick says, watch this. And he takes off running. And about a minute later, he comes back with two quail, one in each hand. I mean, not quail, but dove. And I said, how did you do that? And he says, well, they're little. When they're little, they can't fly very far. So I just, I just ran after them until they couldn't fly anymore. And I picked them up. Well, just knowing that, you don't learn that in school. You don't learn those things unless you spend a lot of time out in the field and you see how they react to you. But I, that was one of the lessons that I learned. You know, there's a lot to learn about animals that are outside, um, you know, our normal daily scope of going to school or work or whatever it is. I really respect somebody who had just that that burning desire to figure out you know, what it is that makes animals tick, where they go, you know, what their daily routines are. And that sounds like that's what you and your brother basically were all about. Right. And it was kind of a, it was kind of like, say, you know, as a younger dude, I was always told, uh, it was always remarked by my teachers that I had an awareness about me. I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. They probably couldn't explain it. But that evolved into, you know, me joining the military and having to do that and, and apply those skills for survival or the hunting of man, you know, uh, insurgents. And as a Marine sniper, I wanted to learn tracking and I wanted to know how to track for three reasons. I wanted to be able to defend myself. I wanted to know when bad guys were around my hide site or if I was about to set up a hide in a populated area or, or a route frequently traveled. I wanted to know um, was that for defensive purpose? I wanted to know for offensive purposes so that I could hunt down somebody who laid an IED on their infantry. Go to the blast site, back from where he came from, where he went to, and I uh, place him under custody or kill him. Um, and then the other reason was to be self-contained. I wanted to be able, for my team, to be able to, to track and harvest fatty meat so that we didn't have to rely on resupplies much. And that's like, that's really the Marine sniper. That's what he wants. You know, and, and other, other guys who work uh, in that type of environment. And so I, what I did was I looked at all the tracking schools in the country. I said, who's doing this? And really it was nobody. They were either teaching man tracking, they were teaching forensic tracking, or they were teaching animal tracking. And uh, so that's basically where I came in. About six years ago, I decided that when I was hunting, because we would hunt elk up in northern Arizona and deer down here in the south, and uh, we would track them. You know, we wouldn't spot and stalk. We would pick up what we believe was the freshest tracks. We had to learn, we teach ourselves how to raise, how to age 
the freshest tracks for that morning, which one was a bull, which one was a cow, you know, how to identify and profile meat. And then we had to come up with a system that would allow us not to lose it. And that's, a, that's easier said than done when you're tracking in uh, the high, high elevations where there's pine needle and rock, you know. So, uh, so that's Freddie, kind of as is usual the case, uh, when we have a, a great guest like you, our time starts uh, leaving us. And we got about seven minutes left. And so I really want to wow. spend some time now talking about index tracking, uh, converting it into more of the hunter uh, uh, application, as well as glint. Um, I, I had the opportunity to be with, with Freddie out in the in the field. Uh, we supplied a Tom car to you way back, and I saw a little bit of what you do, and I wish I could take one of your courses. I'm just a little bit too old. I know all of your stuff says you got to be able to yeah. walk around and uh, carry your, your own gear. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell well, us a little bit about that. We'll get a, we'll talk about that Zev offline, but we, you can definitely do it unless you have any major injuries. Um, as far as the hunting industry, the shooting sports, Tracking is for you, man. Uh, we've come a long way. You know, you talk about harvesting animals in an ethical manner. You're taking long-range shots. Um, every shot ain't going to drop. Every shot isn't going to be an immediate incapacitation of an elk. You know, we wish it was, but it's not. So when you get there and you need to follow a blood trail, just the simplest techniques that we can teach you will help you to not lose that meat, you know. And there's nothing worse than knowing that you wounded an animal and you weren't able to recover it. It's a horrible feeling as a, as a good hunter. Uh, for children, we teach summer programs here in Benson, Arizona, for the Recreation Department. Um, we're teaching them a program in Sonoyta this summer called Hugger Tree. And it's, uh, it's not any hippie stuff. It's, uh, it's basically teaching kids, when they get lost, how to stay warm and sit still, how to thermoregulate, uh, the basic needs and signaling and all that. And it's a really, it's an awesome program. We usually get about 30 kids from 5 to 12. Um, as far as the other things that are considered with uh, the hunting and shooting sports aspect, awareness. You know, you're tracking uh, John H. Poole, who's the author of uh, Fade Line Green and a couple other uh, books, said, the inherent awareness uh, is available to every school-trained tracker. It means that tracking will lead you to awareness. If you want to learn how to use your nose, your eyes, and your ears better, how to focus those systems in an urban environment, in the woods, go see a good tracking instructor because he can teach you how to drive those senses. And what's that going to do for you? It's going to keep you from having to go to the gun in, in any type of uh, you know, bad situation. So now you just said a fascinating thing. You you brought urban into it. Are you saying that some yeah. of your uh, teaching can be applied to if we're God forbid in an urban situation that's gone bad, we would know how to how to survive or track to a safe place? Yes, we teach. Um, I wish we had more time. We teach a program called Grayside Hunter, where we teach uh, students how to cut. We teach them for two days in the desert in a small western town out here in Benson. And then on the third day, we take them to downtown Tucson, and they track, no kidding, in a concrete jungle for three miles, three to five miles, uh, through the middle of downtown Tucson, without any help from an instructor, without any purposely placed footprints, 
um, just the basics and fundamentals of following a trail. And it is all right, uh, man. I am definitely coming. I am definitely coming. Then I'm going to get on, do a little cardio, and be there within two months. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, we we're running one up in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, uh, hosted by F3 Tactical. Our two-day green side uh, uh, weaponized offenses, which is our basic program, is going to be hosted by Independence Training on April 1st and 2nd at Cowtown. Well, that's really interesting. I, I can't imagine what it takes to be able to track somebody through the concrete jungle, uh, but it reminds me of uh, the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they look back and see those guys following them and say, who are those guys? Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome movie clip to have as a uh, tracking instructor, Kelly. <laughs> so, yeah, along with that, we also teach counter and anti-tracking to military and law enforcement only. We have a little bit of tradecraft that we can teach uh, for those guys. And to mention law enforcement, on April 3rd, 4th, and 5th, we will be at Sniper Fest, uh, sponsored by the Arizona Tactical Officers Association, uh, teaching part of their round robin. We're teaching law enforcement some uh, pretty cool tracking techniques. I want to talk to you about something unrelated to tracking now. Um, yes, sir. And this is something I haven't spoke about on, on the radio show uh, before, but I, it's something that um, I really think, be, and you shared the experience with me, so I'm going to get your uh, point of view um, on the dinner that we had last Friday night. Um, for for you listeners out there, I just want you to know it was a group of guys, and I think there were a little bit over 100 of us guys only that met for dinner to, to talk about, of all things, George Washington. And um, such a cool and inspiring thing. What an incredible guy he was. I don't think most people, and I know I, for one, before I got involved in this uh, group, um, had any idea what a a really incredibly uh, awesome guy George Washington really was. It wasn't just that he was just the, the first president of the United States, and that's usually about all anybody knows about him, but... Uh, such an incredible guy. I want I want you to talk a little bit about your experience because I think uh, this year was your first year, right? Yes, it was. It was yeah. A, so what, uh, what what did you bring away from the dinner? You know, it was it, as a you know a teacher of the military and you know a product of the military. Really, um, I really enjoy it. And really enjoyed the military, uh, the, the military side of Washington's history, and and we always talk about, you know, today's war, the guerrilla, the counterinsurgency war, that uh, that we're, you know, we have no way around right now. And and right now, the lessons that he used, you know, during the the early American uh, conflicts. They still apply to today. Uh, he was a master tactician. His his willingness to to conduct guerrilla operations, small unit maneuver warfare, um, really inspires what I do. You know, uh, what I do is not necessarily contemporary. You know, back then we used and George Washington employed Native American scouts, and I believe it was the relationship between the colonials and the Native American scouts and the willingness to work together, it gave us a huge advantage. You know, those young 
first-generation Americans who grew up alongside the natives, you know, who understand, understood their you know, social considerations, their religion, their language. Um, like a Robert Rogers, for instance. Uh, he was a product of that type of uh, you know, society. And so that's what I walked away. I was like, wow, you know, next year I'm going to do my research. I'm definitely going to contribute to this. Uh, and because uh, there's a huge tracking influence even back then. Well, Freddie, I'm I'm afraid that we've come to the end of the show, but I would like to leave uh, our guests before this break with the fact that if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we, we want to uh, get together just a group of guys to, to talk about uh, patriotism and and how we can contribute. It's not a political thing for any of us. It was it was anti political, really. It was more about the patriotism of uh, and the love for being an American and and what this country means to us. And and I encourage any of you that has an opportunity to do that. Just get over the fact that it sounds like it's kind of corny. Um, get involved, and I think you'll find out that you know. That's kind of how our our country was founded. Uh, you know, nobody got together with any certain purpose other than to talk about you know how they felt about things, and and that's how things got done. Freddie, I really want to thank you for being on the show. Really enjoyed getting to uh, hear about your your business, and and I I hope everything goes well. Once again, that's GreensideTraining.com. Freddie, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, Kelly uh, and Jeff. And look forward to seeing you guys next time. Okay, and for our listeners, uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with our next guest. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. 
I want to welcome all our listeners back. Thanks for uh, hanging on with us. And, uh, man, I really enjoyed that first guest. Uh, Freddie's a, a really uh, a patriot and a really great guy. Uh, I encourage everybody to go to his website, get to know more about him. Uh, our next guest is is terrific in his own right. I, I've This guy and I have been doing business together for Oh, shoot, longer than I can remember. Got to be about 25 years. Um, Such a great guy. And the one thing I will tell you about him is he is one of the pickiest customers I have ever had. And I don't say that with any disrespect. I say it with 100% respect because I know if he cares so deeply about the quality of the product that he offers to his customer – that he's willing to to risk that reputation of being a picky customer of mine, then I know that that quality is utmost in in the front of everything that he does. So I want to welcome Daryl Holland. Um, his website is hollandguns.com. Daryl, welcome to the show. Well, Kelly, thank you very much. It's good to be on board. It's uh, it's a beautiful rainy day here in Southern Oregon. It's hard for you to introduce yourself from Oregon without saying it's a rainy day. It's been pretty rainy this this season, hasn't it? It certainly has. We normally get about 70 to 90 inches of rain a year, and I think we've had about two-thirds of that in the last 60 days. So I'm ready for a little Phoenix sunshine. Well, you can come down and hang out with us at any time today. Um, we have had a little bit more rain this season than, than most, but you know we might be up around six or seven inches. Mm. So, uh, where we get normally, you know, seven to nine inches a year. Exactly. Um, so let let's give our listeners a little bit of your history. Uh, we talked off air a little bit. Um, basically, you you started in uh, gunsmithing really young. I did. I uh, when I was a small child, I was just infatuated with guns, shooting, and firearms. I I left high school at a rather early age to go to college at Susanville and attend their gunsmithing program there and uh, excelled there. I set several school records uh, for my performance, was on the dean's list every semester. And then I happened to read an article in, I believe it was Guns and Ammo magazine, about uh, Jeff Cooper and his defensive shooting school. So I pleaded and begged with my dad and scraped and saved money to uh, be able to attend the second gun sight course ever and loaded up my truck and drove from Susanville down to Paulden, Arizona, uh, took the course. Uh, I did a tremendous amount of repair work on everybody's 45 while I was there to kind of keep the course going. And afterwards, uh, Joe Wisdom, Jeff's son-in-law, was kind enough to ask me to come back and, and be the gunsight gunsmith. Well, for a young kid, that was that was quite a quite a deal. I mean, my head was the size of a basketball as I drove uh, drove all the way back to college, and I would work uh, every week there at school, drive down to Paulden, work the class uh, there for a week, and then race back to school and and play catch up. So uh, it was a very unique opportunity. I got to live with Jeff and Janelle off and on for about a year and a half, two years, and they were most instrumental in shaping and forming uh, my life and values as a young man. Well, that's awesome. There's not very many people that can say that. Uh, uh, we were speaking about uh, patriotism and, and being a patriot, and I, I think Jeff Cooper has to be uh, put in the top of that list, no matter uh, who's talking about that. Um, such a guy, I'm 
revered in in almost every circle related to the firearms industry. And so you had a, a really great opportunity to be mentored by, uh, you know, a terrific uh, American. Absolutely. I mean, they were just almost like uh, like second parents. And I was very aware of, of things as a young man in that, I listened more than I talked, kind of, and, and little tidbits and little nuggets of, of information and lifestyle and knowledge and understanding that I was able to glean uh, from both he and Janelle and, and also all the other students that came uh, to Gunsight was just frosting on the cake for me. Well, that's great. So that was your introduction into gunsmithing. Obviously, you were talking about forty-five, so you did some handgun stuff. I'm, I'm sure your education was well-rounded, but you've migrated to fire. I mean, to rifles. I mean, that's what you do now. That's what I do. I, I build long-range precision uh, varmint target and hunting rifles, and then I also teach a long-range shooting program. And I, I did a lot of 45 work in defensive handgun shooting. Uh, when I left Gunside, I traveled around the country and, and taught that for a while. And it was just, it wasn't that the... The, the people were really bad, if you will, but I had some experiences where I ran into people whom I was training that their, their whole thing in life was maybe getting to shoot somebody. And, and I just felt really uncomfortable with that because hopefully we never have to shoot someone uh, in self-defense here in America. Our military guys, you know, completely different deal. But uh, so that kind of changed and pushed me in a different direction, and I had quite a creative uh, brain, and I designed and developed a product called the PGW at P30. And it was a closed bolt uh, 45 ACP carbine with a 30-shot side feed magazine. I designed that when I was about 19 and then manufactured that for three or four years. And uh, then kind of got off into the precision rifle end of things. I did a lot of custom gun stocking and then developed uh, some unique features for the AR-15s, the HK-91s, and the Ruger 1022 stuff way back in the, uh, in the early 70s. You know, I put some of the first Winchester Model 52 heavy barrels into Ruger 1022s uh, back in the 70s. And if I would have had a little bit of guidance, if you will, to say, you know, this young guy's uh, sharper than the average knife in the drawer. Let's take these ideas and, and accelerate them. Look at what the AR market and the 1022 market is today. And I did that 40 years ago. Well, you know, I, I know your work in, in bolt action stuff, and, and I'm always in awe of everything you've done. I have some questions, though. I, I see on your bio you listed that, that you started designing muzzle brakes and barrel tuners, and that's what I want to talk about. Sure. You know, there was, there was a time, and I, I think there is a, still a, a group of people who have the the barrel tuner concept is still alive with them. Uh, talk about what a barrel tuner is, what it's supposed to do, and um, how you feel about that today and uh, within the rifles that you build. Sure. The, the tuner, in my perspective, is, is more applicable to a, uh, to a target gun or a varmint gun, maybe. I'm working on some designs currently that may be applicable to a hunting rifle. But basically speaking, we're, we're trying to find the exit timing of the bullet to the harmonic node in the barrel. Vibration travels up and down the barrel at roughly 18,900 feet a second relative to our muzzle velocity. 
and there are several nodes that we can find through the rifle barrel that will shoot well. But the best load is achieved when the node is closest to the receiver or the recoil lug. At this point of oscillation of the barrel, the muzzle is going to be in its most stable position, if you will. So by adding a tuner to the end of the gun that allows us to extend that vibration rate on the time dwell, if you will, of the vibration racing up and down the barrel relative to the exit timing of the bullet. That's basically, in layman's terms, what a harmonic tuner does. The addition of weight is also a little bit of a factor because it will have a dampening effect. Uh, you'll see that mass, and, and as much as like in a rimfire, a five or ten thousandths lengthening, if you will, of the barrel with the tuner can often result in just some unbelievable group sizes. And the same thing applies in the centerfire application. Uh, Browning, as you know, came out with some of the first commercial uh, tuners that were available in the Boss system, but the muzzle brake was so offensive to a lot of people because it was very loud and piercing that I don't think it really got the attention that it deserved, and it didn't really catch on uh, with the shooting public because they didn't understand what they were getting in the in the boss package, if you will. Uh, so, how much improvement does your barrel tuner provide when you're talking about optimum? Um, give us an idea of what that might look like. I did. Uh, I played a lot in the rimfire game initially with my harmonic tuners. I had a Remington 40X and a Winchester Model 52 uh, that shot phenomenally well, and I created a stainless steel tuner that was about four inches long and was graduated in five thousandths increments of, of rotation that were repeatable. And I proceeded to set up with a variety of different ammunition, whether it was Lapua ammo, RWS, or Ely 10X, and make complete rotational turns for as much as a quarter of an inch uh, throughout that band. And in shooting targets, you will see that there is a circular fashion of oscillation, depending upon the position of the tuner, relative to the harmonic node. And when you get it right for that specific type of ammunition, you can literally shoot bug holes on demand with these different brands of, uh, of ammunition. It also allows you to take mediocre ammunition, if you will, not that Wolf Target is what we call mediocre ammo, but in rimfire circles, it's not really associated with the creme de la creme of rimfire ammunition, but you put a tuner on a gun, and Wolf Target will shoot side-by-side side any of the $10, $12, $15 a box, Ely 10X, or uh, some of the high-end rimfire stuff. So that was really the beginning in the, in the scientific approach, if you will, and I want to use that term very sparingly, uh, to find the zenith of accuracy in the rimfire world, and then I applied it. Uh, to the center fires as well. With a center fire, you have the ability to adjust your powder and your seating depth, and, and many people don't understand the concept of that either. The powder is the course adjustment to basically shoot a flat line or a ladder test with our ammunition, but we can't increase the exit timing relative to the harmonic node with a powder charge, so that's where seating depth comes in to fine-tune the load once we've used the powder as the course adjustment. Yeah, that that's that's pretty scientific stuff. Um, everybody who handloads knows that there's only a couple of things that you can play with: a couple of grains of powder, more or less, and seating depth. Now, my question is: Does anybody 
have the ability to find out where this node is? By, by physically going out and loading different amounts of powder and, and shooting a ladder test, I think, for the average individual is probably the fastest, most productive way to try and find the node. And once we've established the node on the ladder test with our powder charge, we then take a bolt face to ogive dimension of that specific cartridge. The fine-tuning now will come in by adjusting the bolt face to ogive dimension of our ammunition. And we developed a bullet comparator that is now used exclusively by the folks at Sierra in the Match King line to really fine-tune all of the presses, making the Match King bullet more consistent. So in sorting and playing with your bullets now, you will keep this bolt face to ogive dimension consistent and then adjust it 10 out in 10,000 increments initially. When you find an improvement there, then we may go to five each side of that, refining that, and then the individual's ammunition will be loaded to plus or minus a thousandth of that ammunition using his hex nut comparator. Okay. Now that you've thoroughly impressed me, me with all of that stuff, that's way over my head. I'm, you know, I'm just basically barely a, a hand loader and uh, I want really good um, ammunition and I can get a gun to shoot half half minute, maybe three eighths of a minute, and uh-huh. and I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. Um, how do you translate all of this information that you have to your customers that come to your long range shooting school? We give a break a brief overview of of hand loaded ammunition in the long range shooting school. I also do a precision two day loading clinic for people that want to refine their hand loading techniques and we go into great detail uh, in that two day period and then they will learn and and be able to shoot the ammunition there. I, I recently did a bunch of work for the guys at Loophold and was able to swap and trade around for their rail gun so we 're going to use the rail gun now as part of our training in the hand loading in the long range school to show the variations in ammunition. You can have a great load here, but if you just automatically assume that the next batch of bullets you have is going to have the same base to ogive dimension or load to what some people refer to as overall length, you're going, oh my God, what happened? You know, my gun went upside down. No, you just didn't really refine the loading of that specific round based upon your previous uh, load development and bolt face to ogive dimension. So you've actually taken all of this information and you've put it into a package where uh, I could come to your your class, learn all of the ins and outs of what we just spoke about, and come away from there a much better hand loader with a better understanding of what it really takes to make the very best ammunition for my particular rifle. Yes, sir. That is correct. And while we're there, we get to actually shoot it and test it. So we know... Get to shoot it and test it. I hope to have the rail gun up here in the next month or so and uh, allow the students as kind of their final testing to load a specific recipe. And then, uh, you know, given decent weather, we'll run out to the range, set up the rail gun, and uh, be able to shoot and see. Another thing that, that really kind of comes into play here, too, if I may interject, and, and that's the cleanliness of the barrel. Uh, in working with the folks at Sierra and stuff, we find that carbon fouling in the barrel is probably a bigger problem 
regarding accuracy than what we've been associated with copper fouling. You know, you mentioned copper fouling and everybody steps back into the shadows and recoils with horror, but at least Sierra has found that carbon fouling in a barrel is far more critical to accuracy than, than copper fouling is. Well, is carbon a little easier to get out than copper? Depending upon the type of cleaning solutions that you use, uh, there's a plethora of, of cleaning solvents out on the market. We find that a mild abrasive uh, cleaner in just six, eight strokes with a good copper bronze brush is the most uniform way to remove stubborn carbon and copper from the barrel. Uh, we manufacture a product called Witch's Brew that's been used by the folks at Sierra for a lot of years, uh, Pactor barreling and stuff, and it contains a mild abrasive in a special petroleum carry that I developed years ago. Wow, it sounds like you've had quite an impact in in the firearms industry and not just within your own little business. I want to talk about some of your other experiences in the firearms industry. I know um, long-range shooting, there's there's a couple of things that are pretty synonymous with that. Is in, in scopes, you, you can't shoot long-range if you, if you, you don't have a good scope. Um, but You've done a lot of work with reticles that that help to get out to those ranges that we consider uh, long range or extra long range. So let's talk about your work with reticles. Certainly. In uh, in the late 90s, we developed reticle technology called advanced uh, reticle technology. It was kind of in its infancy uh, at that time. I tried to go around and and court some of the different scope manufacturers regarding that, and everybody, oh no no no, we're not we're not interested. We're we're kind of content with uh, with the duplex or, or just the standard crosshair. And I'm going, come on guys, you've got to get out of this Neanderthal image. And and I just couldn't convince anybody. So. I hopped on a plane, flew to Japan, I found one of the optical companies over there, and I made my first scopes with my reticle technology in them uh, from a company called Hako uh, in Japan. Worked out really well, kind of got things on board uh, with that. I was also trying to kind of court the military law enforcement uh, part of the world who were really stuck in the Milradian uh, scale, if you will, and everybody was shooting in MOA. Well, that was kind of sort of maybe one of the first guys to say, wait a minute, we've got to have a scope reticle and dials that are speaking the same language. For decades, we had a mil dot reticle, but we were dialing in minutes. And you're going, well, that's kind of like going to Europe and speaking German and Portuguese, you know. It's just not really connecting the dots. So I finally got, you know, all MOA dials, all MOA reticles, all mil dials, all mil settings. But again, you know, nobody was really catching on or or seeing the benefit to this. And then finally I got on with Schmidt and Bender. Uh, I ran into him at the SHOT Show. I went over and introduced myself and said, hey, you know, I've got a better idea here. Will you work with me? I can't get anybody in the U.S. to do it. He goes, yeah, Mr. Holland. He says, I understand where you are, and uh, we will make a deal. We shook hands on a quarter million dollars worth of Schmidt and Bender scopes with my reticle technology and a left-handed windage dial. Because I said, you know, where is it that we've been making rifle scopes now for over 100 years that just catered to the left-hand shooter when they were a very small percentage of the shooters in the country or in the world, if you will. Everybody was right-handed, and we put the darn windage knob on the right side of the scope rather than the left. 
When we put it on the left from a firing position now, I can reach up and dial or look at my windage knob and know exactly where I'm at if I'm dialing windage in the gun. And, uh, you know, we see some of the other companies kind of coming on board with that now. Uh, so it's, it's, it was kind of inspirational at that point. And I always was in a state of refinement uh, with the reticle technology. My initial reticles were mill on top for a rangefinder to satisfy military and law enforcement applications, and then an MOA scale below to be compatible with the dials. And now I've really just kind of gone to all MOA. I think it's a faster, easier uh, method of training an individual to become quite proficient in a very short period period of time uh, using an MOA scale versus mills. Well, you've been quite the uh, trailblazer in this industry for a long time. Um, and I want to let the, my listeners know that uh, when you talk about Japanese lens makers and Japanese scopes, they don't necessarily have the reputation that the, the Austrians and the Europeans have. But I will tell you from personal experience, because my father... Um, as you probably know, Daryl, my, my father was in the scope business uh, at one time and manufactured a really fine scope. He had his lenses made uh, by Hako, so um, we're familiar with that. They're a top-notch company, and they made uh, good quality lenses. Uh, he got into the scope business by going to the University of Arizona, which has a, a great optical department, and, and asked them to design the very best uh, rifle scope that's ever been designed. So they designed this set of lenses and and it was incredible and so when he went to check and see what it would cost to have those lenses made it was like seven thousand dollars <laughs> so we went so we went back to the university of arizona he said you how much of this do i not need and they said well you know the human eye can only see up to about 34 percent of what we gave you he said <laughs> okay Make design me a set of lenses that will give me everything the human eye can observe, and so he went back to Hako and had those lenses made at at you know a price that he felt like he could still sell a, a scope sure. at. So. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's just very interesting uh, history along that line because, again, anything above what the human eye can can perceive or view is immaterial. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really happy that you spent this time with us, Daryl. <laughs> you know, I can't believe we got two minutes left. Um, oh no! So I'm going to give you the next minute and forty five seconds to give us an overview for our listeners of of how they can get a hold of you, what what they can expect from you in terms of uh, the products that you have and the services, and and maybe we can turn some of our listeners into customers for you. Well, wonderful, and, and thank you very much. For interested folks, you can check out our website at hollandguns.com. Uh, if you're interested in improving your long-range shooting, I think you'll find our shooting school and our course curriculum really kind of second to none. A lot of great schools out there, but the Daryl Holland technique, uh, we really added some interesting things that, uh, that I think will improve your shooting in a hurry. We 99% of everything that we make and offer is designed by me, field tested. I won't sell you anything that I don't personally use or know for a fact is going to improve your game. We're not about money. We're about creating good relationships with the customer and giving you a product that you can benefit from, whether it's on the loading bench or in the field. And you build your rifles on McMillan fiberglass stocks. 
Absolutely. Wouldn't go anyplace else. As we mentioned earlier, we've had such a great working relationship with you and Dick Davis and, and the folks there at the factory that uh, we're just very, very proud to say that Daryl Holland rifles come exclusively with Macmillan fiberglass stocks. Well, that's terrific. Uh, once again, we've come to the end of another great show. I want to thank all my listeners for spending their valuable time with us. I want to thank Daryl Holland for being here with us, Freddie Osuna. Uh, such a great show today. I, I really am looking forward to having you back, Daryl, when we can spend a little bit more time. Maybe we'll do a, an entire uh, hour with you. Uh, this flew by so fast, I'm sure that we wouldn't have any trouble f- uh, filling the, the slot. Um, thanks again. I appreciate you being here. Well, wonderful. Thank you for all you do, Kelly. Take care and be safe. Bye-bye. Okay. And for all you listeners, have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on uh, voiceamerica.com, the sports channel, for another session of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Goodbye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.